The, um, the alternative to that is letting Israelis get killed on buses so that Westerners can feel better about the situation in the territories. And I just don't think that's a valid reason to let busfuls of kids get blown up. Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Mark Townsend, producer. On October 7th, 2023, around 2,500 Hamas terrorists breached the Israeli-Gaza border barrier and massacred at least 1,400 Israeli citizens. About 200 Israelis and foreigners were taken back to Gaza as hostage by Hamas, including at least 14 Americans. The Israeli death toll is the largest slaughter of Jews on any single day since the Holocaust. Some have likened October 7th to Israel's 9-11. While this Gaza-Israeli conflict has been going on in this current form since at least 2006, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict dates back decades. And, for as much as it is discussed under the auspices of geopolitics, human rights concerns, and in expressions of the desire for peace in the Middle East, and a proposed two-state solution to settle the dispute, the origins and the contours of the conflict are often poorly understood. Indeed, it doesn't just go back decades. In some ways, it goes back a millennia. Today, Acton's Director of Marketing and Communications, Eric Cohn, talks with Jonathan Greenberg, the Jack Miller Family Foundation's Director of Freedom Initiatives and the former Midwest Director for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee about the long history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the significance of the October 7th massacre, and what it will mean for Israel and the region going forward. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Jonathan Greenberg, welcome to Acton Line. Thank you. So I want to note at the outset here, uh, we are talking on Wednesday, October 11th at about 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so if we talk about anything with regard to what is happening in uh, Israel right now, and it seems dated by the time you're listening to this, that is why. But uh, to catch people up, it was over the weekend uh, that Hamas terrorists um, – entered the southern part of Israel and killed a lot of people. I don't know that we have exact death tolls yet, but the numbers are in the hundreds. That's what has been happening. But Jonathan, the reason I wanted to have you on is more or less to, for the benefit of not just me, but I think for a lot of people, explain the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to me like I'm a seventh grader. <laughs> Um, I want to do the real basic um, what's what of this. So how far do we have to go back to start that story? I, a lot of narratives that I see will go back to um, the UN partition plan in 1947. Can we start there? Should we start there? Do we have to go back further? Where would you start telling the story? I would start telling the story with Abraham. Okay. Uh, which is... So 3,500 years ago, um, the, but, uh, I, and I think that, um, in order to understand why it matters to Jews that the homeland that we want be there, you have to understand the connection to that land going back in far into antiquity. And you can't understand that without understanding your Bible. And luckily I think most of your listeners probably do understand their Bible fairly well. Um, so maybe we can skip forward, but I, I, I really don't think that you can understand the connection without understanding, um, going that far back and also without understanding something about Jewish history and, and liturgy, um, multiple times a day, if you're saying your daily prayers in Judaism, you're talking about, uh, Zion being restored, the temple being rebuilt, Jerusalem being reconsecrated, all of us being brought together from the four corners of the earth every morning. Um, at morning services, we gather together the fringes of our prayer shawls as we say 
as we ask God to gather us together back in Israel from the four corners of the earth. And we've been doing that for a thousand years. So the, the connection to that particular plot of land is incredibly strong and predates the existence of Islam and frankly of Christianity. Uh, and so this is a, it's an ancient connection. Um, it's a connection that's renewed multiple times a day. And, um, and I think that in order to understand why it matters to us, you have to go that far back. Um, now, to, uh, if I'm being fair, like, uh, you know, Palestinians have a claim to the land, too. It's not a claim that I think is as strong as ours, but they have a claim to it. They were there, many of them, um, or at least their ancestors were, just like our ancestors were there. So, um, but I, I think that if you want to understand from the Jewish perspective, the roots of the conflict, you have to understand the roots of the connection, and that's how far back it goes. So that's that's where I would start. <laughs> so that's the beginning of the connection. I will now let you jump as far ahead in the timeline as you would like sure. to wherever you think it is necessary to begin explaining the origin of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as we know it today. So I would say that you're... I would fast forward then to um, uh, probably the early 1800s um, uh, and the rise of Jewish nationalism in Europe as part of the Enlightenment. Uh, nationalism, not the way that we talk about it today, but the the um, uh, you know, a, a, a splitting up of Europe into nation, into identifiable nation states uh, with identifiable borders, and um, nationalism had swept through Europe. It had, uh, as had the the Enlightenment. With the Enlightenment came um, Jewish emancipation. That you know, Jews were previously uh, uh, controlled in what they could do by law. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to hold positions of high authority. They were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed into certain trades. Um, and with the Enlightenment came uh, more liberalized approaches to religious minorities, including Jews in Europe. And so one of the things that with European nationalism came was an idea of Jewish nationalism. Why shouldn't there be a Jewish state? <clears throat> and so you have uh, this idea that the Jews should be able to have a homeland, have a state of their own, and that, that the place that made the most sense for that state to be was in uh, what, would, what would at the time have been uh, Turkish Palestine. Tur Turkey was the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire was in control uh, of the Levant at that point. Um, and uh, so you see your first wave, and wave is a strong word, um, your first trickle of Jewish immigrants going to the land of Israel, um, during Ottoman times in the early 1800s. Fast forward then to the late 1800s and uh, the Dreyfus Affair. Uh, a French artillery officer is accused of treason um, on flimsy, it turned out, made-up charges. Uh, he is publicly cashiered. You know, He has his epaulets cut off and his medals cut off and his sword broken in front of him um, in, in downtown Paris. And uh, a crowd gathers to jeer him, and it's, it's all anti-Semitic vitriol because Alfred Dreyfus was a Jew. Uh, he was falsely accused, falsely convicted, falsely imprisoned. Um, it was obvious by the end of the trial that it was false, and he was convicted anyway because he was Jewish. In the crowd, the day Dreyfus was cashiered in Paris, was a young Austrian journalist named Theodor Herzl. And Herzl went home and... Uh, was troubled by what he had seen. Uh, Herzl was Jewish and uh, started writing a book called The Jewish State, uh, which he publishes then in the late 1800s. And that really is the beginning of what I would say is modern political Zionism. Uh, there had been Zionist writers for 40 or 50 years before that. Going back to the American, the time of the American Civil War, you've got uh, people writing on kind of Zionism as a concept. Um, as a religious concept, as a as a as a socialist concept, but Herzl really makes it a political movement, and he calls together the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, um, and that group of people 
um, come up with a plan. They, they, they put together some organizations. They, they arrange funding for those organizations to start getting Jews to immigrate uh, to the land of Israel and to start working with the Turkish authorities to you know, possibly create a state. World War I comes along. Uh, and uh, the the you know, Jews uh, fight on the side of the British in the Levant, and they, the the Ottomans lose the war, and the Ottoman Empire ceases to be. Britain is left in control uh, of the Levant, and uh, the you know the the Jewish Zionist effort to establish a homeland gets a guarantee from the British government called the Balfour Declaration. Lord Balfour is the Foreign Minister of the United Kingdom, and uh, it, it basically says that His Majesty's government um, is in favor of the establishment of a Jewish homeland in the land of in the land of Israel in Palestine, and uh, so that that really is the first official recognition that there should be a Jewish homeland in this particular place. This is now what at that point thirty years after the Dreyfus affair, so it happened fairly quickly. And you have large numbers at this point of Jews moving to the land of Israel. And this is the really important thing from what just happened. The reason Jews were moving at this point from Europe to the land of Israel is not because life was easy in Israel. It wasn't. It was very hard. Um, but it was better than staying in Europe because the Jews in Europe were coming from places where they were hated and hunted and killed, uh, where they weren't allowed to live and build lives. Uh, there was terrible violence, terrible anti-Semitic violence against Jews. And and they were fleeing, really, to the land of Israel. And the writings from this period, from the early 20th century, over and over and over again, talk about how dangerous it is to be a Jew in any place in the world and how ultimately we need to be responsible for our own protection and, and to live under the, the protection of other Jewish people and not have to go hat in hand to an emperor or a king or a sultan or whatever. Uh, and so, um, so you start seeing larger waves of Jews after the pogroms of the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, to the land of Israel, and even more after there is an apparatus set up from by the the, the first Zionist Congress to help pay for it. Uh, so that's that's what ended up happening. And then, of course, World War II happens, and the Holocaust happens, and the world sees that there is uh, tremendous justice in the idea of setting up a place where. Jews can find refuge so that what happened to them in the Holocaust, which is effectively that Jews tried to leave and didn't have anywhere to go. Boats were, there's a famous story of the, the, the boats that were turned around by the British. There were boats that reached the United States that we turned back around and sent back to Nazi Germany. Um, we didn't have anywhere to go. No place was open to take us. And so the idea was to create a place where that wouldn't ever happen again. Uh, and that is the state of Israel. Now, in the process of doing that, um, there were people who lived there who we had to try to get along with. And at various times in history, we got along with them better and worse. Uh, and uh, obviously, I'm telling this story from my perspective, and I, the, I think everybody will know what my biases are. Um, and sometimes we succeeded in getting along with them, and sometimes we failed at getting along with them. Um, but largely, uh, the two populations figured out ways to live with one another, uh, especially at the local level. You know, Arab villages and Jewish villages would cooperate, would uh, work together. Um, not always, but but um, but not infrequently. Uh, but as more Jews came, and as more Jews prospered in the land, um, and as the Arab population saw its chances of being independent lessened and lessened. And as other Arab countries uh, around saw the Jewish presence in the land of Israel as an unwelcome uh, usurper in what should be Arab land, you had more and more people uh, being radicalized against that Jewish population. Fights broke out uh, and escalated and... Um, I'm really, I'm really oversimplifying this, of course, but, uh, the, um, you know, ultimately by the time Israel, uh, declares independence in 1948, there's already a full blown war between, um, uh, irregular armies coming across the border to, um, to go into Jewish villages and kill people, um, and some local 
Palestinian Arabs, what we today would call Palestinian Arabs. There's no sense of Palestinian nationhood, of, of an, under, an understanding by the Arabs who live in Israel proper uh, that I know of until the 1960s. Uh, you know, you've got the communist liber, the, the left wing liberation movements of the 60s, um, that plus Arab nationalism that swept uh, the Arab world in the 50s uh, and 60s had an impact on them. And so that combination of Arab nationalism um, and left wing liberation movements uh, uh, and then the, the six day war, the occupation um, of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and uh, the Golan Heights and, and Sinai by the Israelis, um, you've got uh, that all combined to bring about much more of a, of a conscious Palestinian nationalism. And I so want, really, that's the beginning of it. Sorry, go ahead. I want to take a, a, a pause here and, and a bit of a detour um, before we continue down the, the history road. Uh, we did a whole podcast a few years ago that we'll include in the show notes uh, on why people, some people throughout history, and as we've seen now, hate the Jews. Can you give, um, just for some perspective for people just listening to this episode who who don't have the time, perhaps for a whole another hour on this conversation, a little perspective on why anti-Semitism has been so prevalent throughout history? Um, yeah, I think if, if I remember correctly, what we said on there, and I think this is the right answer, is that Jews are uh, are different by design, that Jews want to be um, of a society, but still separate from a society. Uh, and that throughout history, that has meant that our neighbors don't know us as well. Uh, it has meant that things that happen to our neighbors don't necessarily happen to us. Uh, a great example is the Black Plague. Um, the, 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 uh, the Black Plague uh, affected non-Jewish communities throughout Europe um, and didn't affect Jewish communities as much. The reason for that probably, we don't know for sure, but probably was because ritual hand-washing before meals is a part of Jewish tradition, Jewish, Jewish religious tradition. Um, in a way that it's not in Christendom. And so uh, unknowingly uh, and imperfectly, but unknowingly, you, you know, we were washing our hands before meals uh, in, in a, a sanitary way, not just a religious way. Um, and so the Black Plague doesn't, but, but the Christian community sees that and assumes, you know, in the thought of its time that we've made some kind of a deal with the devil. So our being separate um, and unknown to our neighbors um, causes uh, resentment and fear and hatred. Um, we're small and therefore easy to pick on. So if uh, an emperor or a czar wants to rile up his people or deflect attention away from something else, uh, we make a convenient target because we're identifiable. We live close to each other, so you don't have to go all over the city to beat us up. You can just go into one part of the city. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we're small and, and relatively powerless, so we're not going to fight back. So I, I think those are all kind of the things that we talked about. So let's pick up then, again, where, wherever you would like to, because I think one of the important things to cover would be, you know, we have the establishment of the state of Israel, and immediately after that, war, uh, which is where, as you were starting to talk about there, different parts of land that we're still talking about today, Sinai, Gaza, um, are be become, well, the, who is occupying them changes hands. Uh, so pick that up wherever you would like to, and I would like to walk through some of that land controversy uh, that helps explain this conflict. So after the War of Independence in 1948, Israel controls a strip of land that goes from Lebanon in the north, down the Mediterranean coast, through the Negev Desert, down to Eilat, which is on the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, they have a border with then Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, and Egypt, and they're pretty close to Saudi Arabia. They don't control the West Bank at that point, and they don't control Gaza. Egypt controls Gaza, and Jordan has control of the West Bank including Jerusalem. 
At this point, the Jordanian army has kicked all of the Jews out of the old city of Jerusalem. West Jerusalem is still controlled. The newer part of the city is still controlled by the Israelis. But the old city and the holy sites are controlled by the Jordanians. Um, and the Jordanians then set, apart, set, a, set about demolishing all the synagogues in the old city of Jerusalem. So, which is not nice. Um, but that's what they did. And uh, um, Israel, of course, never did that when they retook the territory. So between 1948 and 1967, that's the way things were. There's a tiny strip of land down the middle of the country that is Israel. You can fly over it in seconds. Um, you can drive across it in about a half an hour or 45 minutes. Um, it is strategically very difficult to defend. And that's uh, that's a, a, the big chunk of the middle of the country, which, by the way, is where most people live, is in the middle of the country. So that um, that's the case until 1967. In 1967, then, a number of Arab countries decided to invade Israel. They didn't get a chance to. The Israelis knew that they were coming and struck first. And in the Six-Day War, Israel won a stunning military victory, um, driving into the Sinai Peninsula, taking over all of it from Egypt, driving out the Jordanians from the West Bank, reconquering Jerusalem, which was obviously religiously a very big deal, and conquering the Golan Heights from Syria, uh, and conquering Gaza, um, <clears throat> which in retrospect probably would have been better if they didn't. Uh, that that could be Egypt's problem now, but instead it's it's very much Israel's problem. So the uh, um, that that brings us to nineteen sixty seven. So the, the six day after the six day war, Israel controls an enormous increase in territory. Most of it is the Sinai Peninsula that they control, and there's nothing in Sinai. There's a some lovely tourist areas along the Gulf of Aqaba, but there's really nothing in the Sinai Peninsula. It's rock. Um, there it's some important rocks, right? Mount Sinai is there. But uh, but there's not there's there's not really very much there in terms of population. Uh, it is, however, they they drive all the way up to the edge of the Suez Canal. So what separates the Sinai Peninsula from the rest of Egypt is the Suez Canal, with you know Port Said at one point and Suez at the at the bottom point. Um, and so Israel is now uh, essentially on the Suez Canal, and they control all of all, all the Sinai Peninsula. They control the West Bank. The West Bank is the heart of Jewish history. Um, you know, in the, the, the town of, of, of Hebron, in Hebrew, it's Hebron, uh, that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. Uh, it, it's uh, the, the, the cave of Machpelah, uh, in, for those of you who know your Bible. Um, and, uh, you know, Jericho is there. These are some of the oldest inhabited cities in the world. Um, and there have been continuous Jewish communities there for thousands of years. And then obviously retaking uh, the old city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. Uh, that's a, a religiously significant occurrence for the Israelis to have done. And again, that was, not a, that was a defensive war. Israel struck first, but it was only because they knew that the Arab armies were coming. So they, rather than wait for them to strike first, um, Israel struck first and, and won a stunning military victory. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In 1979, Sinai is handed back to Egypt, correct? Yeah, so after the, the Yom Kippur War uh, happens a couple of months after I'm born in 1973, um, Israel almost loses the war. The, the Egyptians um, drive all the way through Sinai into Israel proper. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was touch and go there for a while. The, the Nixon administration, uh, actually, there's a, there's a famous line that President Nixon has said to have said to Secretary of State Kissinger. He said, put everything that shoots on everything that flies. Uh, to help bail Israel out. Yeah, so the Nixon administration uh, bails Israel out uh, in, the, in the Yom Kippur War. Israel wins the Yom Kippur War, reconquers the Sinai. And then in 1979, as part of the peace deal, um, Israel trades back the Sinai Peninsula in exchange for peace with Egypt. How do the Oslo Accords come about? Sure. After, uh, after the Gulf War, remember during the Gulf War, uh, Saddam Hussein sent hundreds of rockets from Iraq into Israel. And Israel held its fire. Uh, the Bush administration basically forced Israel to hold its fire. Uh, and because the, the coalition that President Bush had established would not have tolerated Israel firing back, no, nobody, especially Arab partners like Saudi Arabia, 
didn't want to have anything to do with fighting alongside Israel, didn't want to be accused of fighting alongside Israel. And so the Bush administration kept the Israelis uh, from firing back. Um, after the war ended, President Bush um, was able to continue the arm twisting to get the Israelis to sit down uh, with uh, Palestinian negotiators and begin the process of hammering out what eventually became the Oslo Accords. The Clinton administration continued that. And they came to a fruition under President Clinton. A big part of that was the relationship that President Clinton had with Yitzhak Rabin, who was the prime minister of Israel at the time, um, and the former foreign minister. Rabin had been, this is something you have to remember about uh, Israeli leaders really up until the last 20 or so years. They were all founding generation leaders. Yitzhak Rabin, um, who was prime minister in the 90s, was a, a fighter, a, a senior officer in the Haganah, which was the, the pre-state militia um, in Israel before 1948. He was you know, a founding generation leader of the military in the state. He was, had been defense minister a few times. He, he was a known quantity. Everybody trusted him. The same thing was true of Ariel Sharon, uh, who was prime minister you know, 20-something years ago now. But, you know, these were all people who stayed on the scene for a very long time but had been trusted military leaders and had won victories uh, and had proven their devotion to the state over and over and over again. Um, and so th that founding generation of leaders was able to take risks because people trusted them to do it. Uh, not everybody, obviously, but but enough people trusted them to do it that they could do it. Uh, and, you know, that I, I think it probably won't come as a surprise to people to know that just like we don't have that kind of trust in the United States in our government today, um, Israel is missing that trust today, too. Uh, that, that, that founding generation that was so beloved by people in Israel, doesn't, they, they passed on from the scene. Shimon Peres died a few years ago. He was the last remaining person from that founding generation. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it's a, a different generation of, of leadership. So uh, the, when Oslo was established, I think all of us, I, I certainly, I was a college kid, I think, at the time. And we were all very excited about what it meant. Peace is at hand, peace in our time. Uh, and then uh, a Jewish assassin shot Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, and uh, Shimon Peres took over, and um, a young politician named uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, campaigned against both Peres and the Oslo Accords. Uh, rightly, it turned out, saying that Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian leadership had no intention of honoring their side of the bargain, that making a bargain with Yasser Arafat was crazy, that he was a committed terrorist, um, and that nothing Israel could ever... Israel was going to be giving up land and giving guns and uh, creating Palestinian political entities and helping to fund them, all in exchange for promises, words on paper. Uh, and that turned out to be true. Um, in 2001, when I lived there, uh, the Palestinians decided, Yasser Arafat, who was still barely alive, decided to begin what came to be called the Second Intifada which was the terror war against Israeli civilians. You had suicide bombings over and over again, suicide bombings of Passover seders full of old people at hotels, suicide bombings of bars and cafes and discotheques on the beach and buses and bus stops. And um, it was uh, a daily, I lived there during the Second Intifada. I lived in Jerusalem during the Second Intifada. It was a feeling of being under siege all the time. Uh, it was a terribly difficult time. And... Uh, at that point, the Israeli political landscape fundamentally changed. Um, and we can talk about the, because I think the impact of what happened last Saturday will also change the Israeli political landscape. I'm just not sure how yet. Okay. But the second, the second Intifada fundamentally changed the way Israelis think about security. All of a sudden, the Labor Party, which had led Israel from the beginning of the state in 1948, really and well before that, the, 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 the Israeli political left uh, had run the state up until after the um, Six-Day War, or I'm sorry, up until after the, the Yom Kippur War, when they were seen to have failed from a security perspective. 
They were tossed out and Menachem Begin's Likud party uh, took over. This is in the late 70s. And then it was kind of, it was, there was a, a, some victories for the left and some victories for the right. So all of a sudden, the Israeli political right had um, a chance in elections. After the Second Intifada, the Israeli left completely collapsed. Uh, and the Likud party really was the only party that was ever able after that to put together coalitions. Also important to know, the way that the Israeli political system works, there has never been a government with just one party. Governments in Israel have, from the very beginning of the state, been multi-party coalitions. Uh, there is no such thing as a non-coalition government in Israel. The current coalition government has, I think, four parties in it. That's actually great. I think the last one had six. And if you try to imagine the deals that you have to cut as prime minister, the, thing, the promises you have to make, the things you have to give up to put together a coalition of six parties, it's a lot. Uh, so the, but the, the system is set up then to have those coalitions. Um, and uh, for the last you know, 20 years, really, the, the, the Israeli political right has dominated politics exclusively on the issue of security. And the left in Israel hasn't really figured out what to offer Israelis that's different. Because you can say, we want to sit down and talk to the Palestinians. That's nice, except Israelis don't believe in that approach anymore. They don't believe anything that the, the Palestinians say can be taken seriously. They're not willing to give up anything concrete in exchange for words on paper because they've tried that before and lots of people died. So they're not willing to do that. And uh, so, you're, you know, the Israeli political system really has been stuck for the last 20 years. They keep voting in right-wing governments um, who hold the line, who maintain some kind of a status quo. Nothing gets better. The Palestinians get more angry. Um, and, it, you know, it's a, a recipe for making everybody angry. But the only alternative is what the left is offering, which already failed. Uh, so the, that's, that's where we are. Today, since since the second intifada, we've had right wing governments. Um, I would say the the government we have now is the most overtly right wing, uh, probably that Israel's ever had. There are a few cabinet ministers who are uh, on the far right of Israeli politics. That's really the first time that's ever happened, um, where you have people who aren't from explicitly orthodox parties who are very right wing, uh, and so that that's where we are today um, politically. Why don't we shift our perspective then to Gaza? And correct me again if I'm if I don't get the history right here. It's in 2005 that Israel pulls out of the Gaza Strip. That's right. So talk to me about that and how Hamas comes to power in Gaza. So I was actually uh, I was actually in Israel in 2005 during the dis it's called the disengagement in Hebrew it's heat not kut heat not kut um, and uh, so the disengagement from Gaza was done under Ariel Sharon and uh, it it was I, I I remember on my wedding day watching uh, on TV before the <laughs> before the ceremony um, Israeli soldiers going into Jewish communities in Gaza dragging people out who had refused to leave, putting them on buses and driving them away. And the, you have to understand the psychological impact of, of that happening to Jews, of people watching Jewish soldiers go into Jewish homes and drag Jews out in living memory of the Holocaust. That's a difficult thing socioculturally to do. And yet Israel did it because they believed that the best thing to do was to leave Gaza, to get all the civilians out of Gaza, to remove all the settlements from Gaza, and basically to leave the Gazans to their own devices. Um, and uh, that they were spending a lot of uh, treasure and, and blood uh, defending these Jewish communities and better to just pull them out. And that's what they did. So uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority then runs Gaza. The Palestinian Authority runs the West Bank and runs Gaza. They have an election. And that was gosh, just a couple of years later. They have an election in Gaza for local control. And Hamas wins the election. And that's not a big surprise. Hamas is um, 
uh, an, an overtly Islamist organization, whereas the Palestinian Authority is more of like a, a left-wing liberation movement, the, the Fatah Party, which is the political party that controls the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, is a, you know, a, a left-wing liberationist kind of Castroite, you know, the kind of thing Shea would have fought for, uh, revolutionary movement. And Hamas is an Islamist movement. Now, that's not to say that the people in the PA aren't Islamist. They are. They just don't really mean it as much as Hamas does. Hamas actually really means it. They're an overtly Islamist movement. So the um, so Hamas wins the election within, and then there's a there's a period where they're trying to co- theoretically trying to cooperate with Fatah, but they hate each other. Hamas and Fatah hate each other, and so ultimately Hamas just takes over all of Gaza militarily. Um, kills or expels uh, the Fatah uh, uh, activists or Fatah uh, party people, and um, and they have control at that point over Gaza. I don't remember what year that was, but they have they have control at that point over Gaza. So I think that brings us to kind of the late two thousands. Um, the note I have here is uh, is of Israel offering Mahmoud Abbas once again recognition of a Palestinian state in all of Gaza, ninety four percent of the West Bank, uh, with East Jerusalem as its capital, and uh, offered to dismantle settlements. Um, this is rejected by the Palestinians, um, and then as as I have again the notes I have here, uh, you know a lot of these conflicts and and major points of history that we've been walking through. Um, you know, other than the lobbing of rockets into Israel periodically, um, you know, there there aren't any other major military conflicts really until what has happened just in the last few days. Is that accurate, largely? Um, yeah, I mean, there were there have been um, there have been military operations in the past called 16, 17 years. There hasn't been a major incursion into Gaza in quite some time uh, by uh, by Israeli soldiers, and um, and the reason for that is really simple. Uh, nobody, I mean, no, the the number of Israeli soldiers that will die in an incursion into Gaza has to be worth it. the 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 mission has to be something that's achievable, and whatever is achieved has to be worth the cost in lives. Gaza is basically one enormous booby trap. Um, the, they are absolutely ready for the Israeli. They're, they want the Israeli army to come in. Um, they want civilians to die. They want uh, to martyr themselves. They, they, that's what they want. And so you're fighting not just on the enemy's turf, but on their terms. So it's, it's not something that Israel has wanted to do. And so what you've seen is over and over and over again, when Hamas lobs rockets into Israel in any great number, um, or there's some kind of terrorist attack, Israel will attack in Gaza, but they're attacking to achieve quiet. Uh, they're cha- they're attacking to return to a status quo of quiet. Uh, they're not attacking, and, and they're, they they do damage to Hamas. They they kill Hamas officials. They blow up Hamas weapons depots. They uh, expose, you know. Hamas uh, intelligence operations that are in the same building as the Associated Press with the full knowledge of the Associated Press staff um, using the Associated Press's human shields and with their full knowledge. That's another story, I suppose. But the, um, their military headquarters are in the basement of the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City. Um, and again, again, they know that the Israelis aren't going to blow up the main hospital in Gaza City. So they hide their headquarters in the basement there. We're, Israel is forced by the international community and by their own morality to fight according to 20th century rules that were written when Westphalian states were fighting each other. Uh, and those rules don't, they, then they know those rules, they understand, the, the Hamas knows those rules, they understand those rules, and they take advantage of them now. Uh, and so one of the things that I, I think I would like to see come out of this, which won't because we'd have to have serious leadership for that to happen and we don't, one of the things I'd like to see happen is a serious reconsideration of what the international laws of war are because the enemies of civilization have figured out what our laws are and they use them against us. So a couple of terms that we've heard frequently 
uh, over the last few days um, have described uh, Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands and describe a system of apartheid. Yeah. Um, how would you answer those charges? So first of all, let's. what is apartheid? Uh, apartheid is a system of separation between two groups of people based on racial animosity. In South Africa, which is where the term comes from, it was separation between black people and white people because white people didn't like black people. And you didn't have parts of South Africa where black people were fully integrated into, into society uh, and then other parts of South Africa where they weren't. That was the law in South Africa. Um, and it was, it was a racist law, a racist system and a racist law. Israel proper is not divided. Uh, there are Arab, fully full citizen Arabs. There are Arab members of the Supreme Court. There are Arab members of the Knesset, the, the Israeli parliament. There are, there's a, a very popular Arab news anchor, Arab Israeli news anchor. Uh, Arabs are full citizens within Israel proper. Um, they generally live in Arab villages, but not all of them. Some of them live in cities. Some of the neighborhoods are mixed. Some of the neighborhoods are separated, but that's all by choice. When you get into the West Bank, or what I would call Judea and Samaria, which are the traditionally Jewish names of those areas, when you get into Judea and Samaria, it's different. But it's not different because of racism. It's different because of security. The, re there, the, the accusations are there are different roads for Jews and for Arabs in Judea and Samaria. That's true. That's for security purposes. It's because it's dangerous for Arabs to be allowed to use the same roads as Jews in those places because they'll try to hurt Jewish people. Uh, there are checkpoints that make it very difficult for Arabs to get from place to place uh, in, uh, in Judea and Samaria. That's true. And those same checkpoints don't apply to Jewish people. They can go right through. And the reason for that is because it's not Jews who are transporting suicide bomber vests and guns uh, in order to go into Israeli cities and kill people. So, uh, it, you know, that there are even ambulances have to stop at these checkpoints. That's true. And the reason for that is because while inspecting those ambulances before, they've found bomb materials, including when I lived there. Um, so it, it is true that there's a separation in the West Bank. That, that separation is based on security needs very broad blanket security needs. It's not fair. I completely agree. It's not ideal. It's not what Israel would like. Unfortunately, I don't see any other way. The, um, the alternative to that is letting Israelis get killed on buses so that Westerners can feel better about the situation in the territories. And I just don't think that's a valid reason to let busfuls of kids get blown up. And Israelis agree. So there is a different system in Judea and Samaria than there is in Israel proper, but it's not based on race, it's based on security needs. So that's, the apartheid claim is exclusively meant to demonize Israel. It has no basis in reality, uh, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a propaganda tool. What was the second one? Occupation. Yeah, so under, under international law, there isn't an occupation. Uh, under international law, by the way, I don't care about international law personally, um, but under international law, by, the, by, by their own definition, there is no occupation. In order for there to be an occupation, Israel would have to be occupying someone else's country. So, Eric, you tell me, if not Israel, who does, that, who do, who does the West Bank belong to? The previous owner was Jordan. Jordan, as part of its peace treaty with Israel, gave up any claims to that territory decades ago. Um, and they didn't really want it before that because they don't want to control a million Palestinians any more than those Palestinians want to be controlled by Jordan. So the, the country that held it before was Jordan. That country, Jordan, won it in a war. They don't have any reasonable claim on that land. They won it in a war. They took it um, as part of, they took it over after it had belonged to Great Britain as part of the War of Independence against Israel. So it never really legitimately belonged to Jordan, but that's who was occupying it for the first 20 years of the existence of Israel. Before 1948, the country that had control of it was Great Britain, except Great Britain doesn't want it anymore. So the country that, that controlled it before Great Britain 
was the Ottoman Empire. Well, the Ottoman Empire doesn't even exist anymore. So the, 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 you can go as far back in history as you want, but it can't be an occupation unless you can tell me who the legitimate owner of the land, what state it is occupied from. And this is where the international law quango crowd gets really creative. And they say things like, well, it's Palestinian territory. That's terrific. It's not the definition in international law. You're just making stuff up. Would it be great if there could, you know, if, if, if there was a legal, would it be great for the Palestinian national movement if there was some kind of legal precedent for creating a country out of, out of thin air and saying that it's now occupied? Sure, that'd be terrific for the Palestinian national movement. Unfortunately, there's no precedent for that in international law. It, the, the language that we use here matters because if you're occupying a country, there are certain obligations that you have. There are, um, there are certain things that you have to do. There's, it's, you're in legal violation of certain things. Um, and so the language actually matters. And there isn't an occupation. Uh, I, I strenuously resist using that term occupied territory. They're not occupied, not under international law. What I'd say is they're disputed. There's a dispute between the Palestinians, the international community, and Israel. Israel has its legal position. The Palestinians have their legal position. And some kind of deal will have to be worked out. Everybody has to be reasonable. There's not a lot of reasonable people in the neighborhood, unfortunately. Um, so we are where we are. But that doesn't mean that you can just mold international law to fit whatever your narrative is. There is no occupation. So what begins this past weekend? Again, we're talking on Wednesday, October 11th. Um, it, is it accurate to say that this is the worst act of mass murder against Jews since the Holocaust? Oh, yeah. I think that's uh, right now we're up to 1,200 um, killed. The, the, the number is at 1,200, 150 to 170 um, kidnapped and taken into Gaza. Probably many of those are already dead. Um, the Oh, absolutely. It's definitely the worst act. It's the worst pogrom uh, against Jews, the worst the, the highest Jewish body count in one day since since Auschwitz was operational. Absolutely. Uh, I read a piece that we referenced on the Act and Unwind podcast this week uh, comparing this or, or suggesting that this is Israel's 9-11. Do, do you think that's an apt comparison? Um, I actually think it's worse uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, just as a proportion of the population, uh, 1,200 people killed um, is... A, a much larger percentage of the Israeli population than um, the 3,000 plus that were killed on 9-11. Every Israeli knows someone who is directly affected. They either know someone who was killed or they know the family of someone who was killed. It's a very small country. Um, and then uh, the the captives. You know, imagine if, if, Saddam, if, Saddam, if uh, Osama bin Laden had taken thousands of Americans hostage, which is what that number corresponds to. Probably tens of thousands of Americans held hostage by Osama bin Laden in God only knows what conditions, ISIS-style conditions, right? You know, torture and, and rape and all kinds of horrible stuff. Um, and and uh, it was a large enough number of Americans that every American knew somebody. Uh, imagine not just the 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 horror that we would feel, but the socio the long-term sociocultural impact that that would have, that that sense of unease would have. You have um, also the sense, I think, on the part of Israelis, and, and this will come later. I, I, don't, I, I don't see a lot of this now, but it will come later, of deep shame and anguish that Israelis allowed this to happen to Jewish towns and villages and homes and families in a Jewish state under the protection of a Jewish army uh, in total violation of everything we talked about earlier, which was the whole point of setting up the state, which is there was no safe place for Jews to go. This is supposed to be a safe place for Jews to be. And where was their protection? Many of them waited hours and hours with terrorists running rampant in their towns uh, for um, salvation that didn't come. And uh, Israel's going to be dealing with that for a very long time, much longer than America dealt with um, 
with the the ramifications of of 9/11. I think this is a uh, this there will be a massive cultural change in Israel. I'm not sure I have no idea what shape that'll take, but I think it'll be far more socioculturally impactful than 9/11 was here. I also hope, frankly, that Israelis make better decisions uh going forward than we made about how to deal with 9/11. Uh so um I think we we mishandled a lot of stuff after 9/11 but uh um I I think it's a much I think it's much much bigger and, and in terms of loss of life it's much more like I think Nagasaki. Have you been surprised at all by some of the responses to this in the United States? I mean if if you've been online you've seen videos of uh pro-Palestinian rallies statements uh that pretty clearly seem to want to justify the brutality and the murder that has happened. Um, has this, I guess, the the nakedness of this, has that surprised you at all? In some quarters, it has. I'm surprised to see uh, there, there's a, a there, there are different groups of people. Uh, there, there are the people who are virulently anti-Israel, who their whole identity is tied up in being anti-Israel and being pro-Palestinian, and they're never going to change their tune. And any admission that Hamas has done something subhuman hurts their political cause, which they care about more than anything, including their own uh, soul, I guess. And so those people are not, um, those people are, are of course going to defend Hamas or they're going to lie and say that it's, there's a, the big move today is, um, there was a report. I don't remember if it was yesterday or the day before that Hamas had beheaded, um, 40 infants, uh, in the kibbutz of Kfar Aza. And, uh, it, the IDF won't show pictures of dead bodies. Um, the IDF never does that uh, because they, in Judaism, um, it's it's not done. It's contrary to Jewish law to to show a dead body. Um, it, it's considered a, an act of desecration to do that. And so, even for international propaganda purposes, they're not going to take pictures of beheaded babies and spread them around. And you've got these Palestinian activists on on Twitter saying, basically, show us the beheaded babies. I I, want to see pictures of beheaded babies or I don't believe pictures or it didn't happen. Um, And uh, it's this really sick. By the way, as if it's not bad enough that they were killed, it matters so much that they were beheaded. I mean, nobody's denying that they went into these little kids houses and butchered their parents and butchered their siblings and killed them. There's no denial of that. But I, I, but beheading—that's where we draw the line. Um, so there's that group of people. They, nothing they do surprises me, um, and I also think that uh, part of that group is the group that really believed that these Hamasniks were freedom fighters. That all they wanted was political independence and self-determination, and all this other nonsense, where they'd never bothered to listen to Hamas at all. Um, they they were infantilizing. There's a, a big move on the left, especially the American left, that just infantilizes Palestinians, doesn't even bother listening to them, assumes that they want the same things that the American radical left wants. Uh, and they don't want that. They want Hamas wants an Islamist society, and they're perfectly happy slitting throats to get it. And all of a sudden, the left is confronted by the fact that, oh, my God, when they talked about murdering Jews, they meant it. And there are some people who can't handle that and double down. Uh, and so those people don't really surprise me. Then there are people, I think, of good faith somewhere in the middle uh, who uh, both sides it. Well, in an effort to, to try to understand it. Well, you know, you have to understand why they feel this, why they're so angry, why they would go into a music festival with a bunch of 20-year-olds and butcher people and rape women. You have to understand why they would do that. Um, and that's also very disappointing um, and surprising. Uh, so I, I think it's a mixture. 
uh, of reactions that I have. All of it's disgusting. And frankly, I think the, the handy thing about times like this is that people really show you who they are. Um, and, and it should be remembered. The, all of the people who weren't able to just condemn this, who had to talk about occupation, who had to talk about apartheid, who, all the people who couldn't just say, this is reprehensible, it doesn't represent me, it's, it, you know, it's, all, everybody who can't just say that, um, we should remember. And, and, and those should, people shouldn't be taken seriously again. I have two more questions for you. The first is, what is Iran's role in all of this? They control everything that Hamas and Hezbollah do. Um, there's no doubt in my... Well, by the way, there'll be an investigation into this. I'm sure a lot more information will come out. My gut instinct is, before we're actually knowing anything, so I don't have any insider information on this, but my gut instinct uh, as an educated observer is that the entire operation on Saturday was planned with Iran's help. Um, Iran supplies all of the money and munitions and explosives and weapons to Hamas and to Hezbollah. They are the main benefactor of both of those groups. So they're ultimately responsible for all of it anyway. Um, but my guess is that there's a significant amount of Iranian intelligence that went in to that attack. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I think that. The, the attack started with um, suicide drones, technology that was given by Iran to Hamas. And then Iran captured from us, by the way. Suicide drones that were flown into the cameras that Israel maintains on the border fence. Now, I've been to that border fence. I've been to the Karim Shalom crossing, and I've been um, I've driven around the border fence. Uh, when you go into any part of a building in uh, on the Karim Shalom crossing, which is an administrative center that supplies goods into Gaza. Um, you have to check your phone into a metal box. You're not allowed to take your phone with you. They make you check it in because they don't want people taking pictures of where camera positions are. So I've been in the control center at the Karim Shalom crossing, which is where you can see where all of the cameras are. And I didn't have my phone with me because they didn't want me taking pictures. It's, it's a very secure facility. Somehow they knew where all of those camera positions were. And the first thing that they did was blind Israeli security using suicide drones. Uh, there's no way that they knew that without Iranian help. And, or at least some state actor helped them, and the most likely state actor is Iran. So, I mean, it's a, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that Iran was very involved in the planning, certainly in the funding, certainly in the arming, um, and we'll learn more about that in the coming months, I would imagine. I have, uh, I said I had two more questions. I, I had three more questions. Um, the second now is it had been Israel that was providing, to my understanding, electricity and power to Gaza, as well as um, some other forms of basic supply. Uh, and that has been cut off. Um, this has been heavily criticized by people in the you know, always ambiguously defined international community. Um, what is what what is the origin of Israel again being the provider of something like electricity to this area, and uh, how do you answer those criticisms about the cutting off of electricity to Gaza now? The uh, Israelis have always provided some of the electricity and water. Um, to Gaza, they are uh, um, they do that from back in the days when they were occupying it before they pulled out, and they continued to do it. The Palestinian Authority, I think, pays them for Gazan uh, power and water, even though the Palestinian Authority isn't in control of Gaza. I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I think they pay them. I know they pay them in the West Bank, uh, and um, the uh, the origin of continuing to do it is that, I don't know how many years ago now, but uh, a Hamas rocket uh, blew up the main power generating station in Gaza, um, significantly hampering their ability to produce their own electric power. 
um, not by an Israeli rocket again. This is a misfired Hamas rocket. Um, and they've also pulled up out of the ground a lot of the water piping uh, to use to make rockets. So the water supply is inconsistent because they've used that for military purposes. The electrical supply in Gaza is hampered in terms of domestic production because they've been firing or they misfired a rocket and hit their own power plant. Um, and Israel has been subsidizing. Uh, so that's how, that's how that happened. Um, every, by the way, the, the accusation that Israel is running a blockade on Gaza um, is it's the same people that are complaining about Israel cutting off supplies who also complain that Israel's running a blockade. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either Israel's blockading the country or they're supplying it with goods. You can't have both. Those are mutually exclusive things. Uh, and the truth is Israel hasn't been running a blockade. Again, I have been to the Karim Shalom crossing. I've seen trucks full of goods ready to go into Gaza. And Israel does that, by the way, knowing that every single truck that goes into Gaza is commandeered by Hamas, that Hamas hands out those goods as they see fit to themselves first, to their allies second, and then to hungry kids if they get around to it. So they keep um, they keep the Gazan population in need as much as possible, so they're dependent on Hamas, and so they're angry. Uh, and excuse me. And so, so they, uh, uh, so there isn't a blockade, but Hamas ultimately takes control of all of the goods that come in. And listen, if you're going to be running a long-term military operation, which they are, uh, Israel's not under any obligation to feed water or power its enemy. Uh, and the first people who will benefit from food, water, and electricity will be Hamas. And listen, I have a I have a nephew who uh, it, you know is uh, is called up uh, to the IDF, and he's not a combat infantry soldier, so he's not going to go into Gaza. But if he were, the last thing I want, I, the the guy I want him in a shootout with hasn't eaten in three days and has a dead cell phone. I don't want him in a firefight with a bunch of guys who are well fed and have cell phones that work. So I the Sure, it you know it, it sucks for the civilian population. It is not illegal under international law. People who um, people who want, the, especially the people who love international law, they want to use international law to make it impossible for Western countries to defend themselves. That's not what it does. It makes it so civilians aren't a target of military operations. Civilians are not the target of this policy. Hamas is. Final question. For people who have been watching what has been transpiring over the last several days and what we don't know that will have transpired between the time that we're talking now and when this episode airs, for people who feel compelled to want to do something to help in some way, what can people do? So the first thing people can do is pray. Um, and I, I believe this is a, a praying community that I'm talking to, and, and um, I believe Prayer is efficacious, and I assume a lot of your listeners believe that too. So the first thing that I would say is pray. Uh, the second thing I would say is call your members of Congress and your senators and ask them to ask the Biden administration to give Israel time. This is going to take a lot of time, and there are going to be some really awful pictures and videos that we're going to see of Palestinian kids who have been killed. Um, it's, it's going to get ugly because Hamas hides behind those kids. The moral responsibility for every death that comes in Gaza is on Hamas. Uh, it is not Israel's moral responsibility that Hamas chooses to hide behind children. Israel's not going to let that stop them this time. They can't. So the, once those videos and pictures start to show up, the resolve of the Biden administration to give Israel time is going to be tested. And what they need to be hearing from, uh, from members of Congress is, that the constituents want Israel to have time. Don't force Israel to stop prematurely. So I would say call members of Congress. And, and I, I ask people to do this because the other side is very effective at this, pushing for ceasefires, pushing for status quo. 
pushing for forcing Israel to stop what it believes it needs to do. Um, there shouldn't be any pressure. Israel should be able to pursue their military objectives until they have accomplished them, um, no matter what the cost. Uh, and we we have to, especially when those pictures and videos start coming out, as they will, and the people who we were just talking about who are pro Hamas, they're going to be using that as propaganda to try to get the world to intervene. The world keeps stopping Israel from defending itself. That's that that time has passed. Israel after this after this outrage, Israel needs to be allowed the time and space to pull Hamas out root and branch. And that's going to take time and there will be civilian casualties and we need to tell our members of Congress and our senators to allow Israel time. Pass that information on to the Biden administration, allow Israel time. So those are the two things I think most immediately that Americans can do, pray and and make those calls. Jonathan Greenberg, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. You're welcome. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.